Please turn to Psalm chapter 2. This year we have been learning to love the Psalms, and it's something that uh, I've described as being raised in and loving from the from my earliest days, and even so, I am really enjoying this theme that we have this year and the opportunity to preach on these psalms and to, and to renew uh, uh, an interest in and a love of the psalms, and I, I hope that you are infected in the same way as I am. Please listen to God's word. This is Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. The first two psalms set the tone for the entire book of the psalms. They have been called two pillars that stand as something of an entrance to the book. We enter into them and are drawn into the psalms by these two pillars. By way of, of framing, both psalms drive you to the conclusion that the Christian life begins and ends with Jesus. And by way of invitation, by way of drawing, these two pillars invite you to find Jesus as the righteous one as he is demonstrated throughout the entirety of the book of Psalms. But even more than that, they invite you to find Jesus personally. They invite you to enter into a relationship with our triune God through Jesus Christ by faith in him, to be blessed by him, to grow in grace and obedience through him. Just as a reminder, I preached on Psalm 1 as a beginning psalm in this, in this series. It taught us, blessed is the man who walks in righteousness, who does not walk in the way of wickedness. We found that we can't do that perfectly. It's only Jesus who is this righteous man. But through him, then we enter into that path of righteousness as well. 
We learn obedience and we experience God's blessing through Jesus, the righteous one. Psalm 2 now goes on to further identify who this Redeemer is and what he is like. And it identifies the Redeemer as God's Son, as his anointed one. And it declares that the Lord has, has chosen to redeem and to rule us through his Messiah, through this anointed Son. And so today, as I preach on Psalm 2, I want you to focus on Jesus Christ, who is God's anointed king, and to come to look to him for redemption and to accept his rule. Before we get to Jesus, though, I want to set this psalm in its historical context, because God's anointed king is also David, and David is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. In the great history of redemption, God raised up David and established a covenant with him. And you could read all of Psalm 2 as referring to to David with then allusions or foreshadowings of Jesus Christ. And while I'll do that, I, I want to divide it up just a little bit In verses 1 through 6, I'll focus on David, but foreshadow Jesus, but then shift in verse 7 through 12 and focus on Jesus and draw in some connections with David. So let's start with David. We're almost to this point in my preaching through 1 Samuel, the point where, where Samuel comes to David and anoints him as the king over Israel. I thought it might be good to pause here and just define what anointing is. In David's day, leaders were designated by a service where oil was poured out on their heads. The leaders were prophets and priests and kings. Now, when I hear the word oil, I most often think of motor oil, but it's not that kind of oil. That would, that would be gross. The oil that was used in Old Testament days might be more well understood by us today as something of a perfume, an ointment. And it came to represent the presence of God and his blessing that is figuratively poured out on the leaders of Israel. So just think of that, this designation of the leaders of Israel being anointed with the presence of God and with the blessing of God, signified by the oil that is poured out on their head. We don't have anything quite that compares to this today. Uh, In the United States, leaders are sworn in to office. And that might help you understand a little bit of what is happening here, but it, but it falls short because of that aspect of the very deliberate designation of the presence and blessing of God that the oil represents. And David was anointed as king, as we will find. And David calls attention to this in Psalm 2. He calls attention to the fact that the Lord had raised him up, had anointed him with his blessing and presence, and 
he also calls attention to the fact that God had entered into a covenant with him. Another very powerful aspect of David's rule and reign, of the redemption that, that Jesus would come to fulfill in his day, and that, uh, that covenant you can find later in David's life. It doesn't come until 2 Samuel. If you'd like to read it in its entirety, I encourage you to do so. You'll find it in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. There you'll find that, that uh, David, toward the end of his life, purposed to build a house for God. He recognized that the Lord had blessed him and, and blessed him incredibly and that he was living in this great, uh, great royal mansion. But God's house was still a tent. And David thought, you know, that's not right. Here I am living in a glorious, uh, glorious castle, and the God that I worship is in a tent. He deserves better. I, I, I want to build a house for God. And God responded, thank you, David, but no. I will build a house for you. I will build a house for you. And he entered into a covenant with David. And the language of the covenants previously had been, I will be your God. You will be my people. And now God further unveils his plan and purpose of redemption to say, not only I will be your God, you will be my people, but the blessings of the covenant are going to come through you as I will give a king that descends from you. Someday there will be a child, a son that is born, who will be king in Israel. In fact, I will establish your kingdom so that there will always be a Davidic king in Israel. And someday there will be a son born that will be my son. Listen to the way it's said in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your father, that's talking about his death, I will set up your seed or your descendant after you who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom will be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And your son will be mine. This Davidic covenant lasted all through David's life and all throughout the history of Israel and Judah, on through the exile and the return, and even to Jesus Christ. And might I say, on into eternity itself. This is the promise that God is giving about David's son, who would be God's son. So, Regarding David, then, you, you, you understand why you find him so much in the Psalter, why it's one of those, those pillars of Psalm 1 and 2 that frame the Psalms, that invite you in, and they structure 
your understanding of what's going on here. As you go on and learn to love the Psalms, notice how often David's kingdom is mentioned. Notice how often David himself speaks. Notice how often David is the author and he tells stories of his own life. Well, there's a purpose for that. It's because he foreshadows Jesus. He's the one that's pointing forward to this redeemer who would come. Now, David was a, a man after God's own heart. He was, he was a king different than Saul. And in 1 Samuel, we're longing for that, aren't we? We're longing for that king that would represent God, would rule in righteousness. And David does that, not perfectly, but he is a foreshadowing of the perfect king who would come, Jesus Christ. And God called him, he blessed him. He speaks of bringing redemption and rule through David. Now, for David, that redemption is a physical redemption. It has in mind deliverance from the very real enemies and armies that fought against Israel. And so in Psalm 2, you'll hear David speaking about the kings and the nations conspiring against God and his anointed king. And, and that's, that's, that's David and, and representative of, of all of David's kingdom. And it speaks about those physical armies, those nations that try to, to cast off God and his rule. In fact, if you step back and look at verses 1 and 3, they represent something of a, of a big picture of all of human history. It started back in the Garden of Eden where there's enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Well, that's the conflict that, that exists in all of history. The conflict between God and the enemy, between God's children and the enemy and his enemy Satan and all of those who rebel against God. I like the way Robert Godfrey describes it. It presents the defiance of the world in rebellion against God, his king, his ways, and his people. The world wants a self-destructive freedom rather than the liberty of the sons of God. That's what verses 1 and 3 describe, isn't it? The kings of this earth, those who ally themselves and conspire against God, they say of God, he has chained us up like an animal. Let us throw off those chains. We want to be on our own. Can you hear what they're saying about God? About his ways, about his rule, about his redemption? All of those things go together. The rule and redemption have to go together. And they rebel against it. Then look at verses 4 through 6, and you see God's response. God laughs. And that that should send chills up your spine. Almighty God laughs at the attempts 
of those who are most mighty in this world to conspire against him. It's as if he would say, what can you do? You will never prevail because I am God. And it's right for him to say that. It's right for Almighty God, who is holy, to speak to those who rebel against them, that your, way, your, your days are numbered. And specifically, God speaks about the way that opposition will fail and the means by which you will accomplish that is he says, I have set my king to reign. I have set my king to reign and no one will prevail against him. That's God's answers to the opposition of the world. And again, hear that as framing the Psalms and really arching over all of history. Isn't that the story of the Bible? That the seed of the woman would come to crush the head of Satan and to reign now and forever, redeeming his people and condemning those who rebel against him. And that's what David is speaking about. David picks up the language of the covenant that, that God had made with him in 2 Samuel 7. It picks up that idea of a kingdom that will never end, that will be established forever and ever through the seed of David. And so Jesus comes as the son of David. And he is the king that is promised by this psalm which leads us to, to Jesus, God's anointed king. Because as David speaks uh, of, uh, of Jesus's or God's words, I will be his father and he will be my son, we have to think of Jesus here. It is Jesus who comes in fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises, he comes in fulfillment of God's promises to send a redeemer. And, and he says that the temple that would be built would be torn down. But he would build it back up again. Now he's, he's using the, the building of the temple as a metaphor for his body. And he says that that temple would be torn down, but he would raise it up again and that he would rule and redeem all of his children. So we can see all we can see David and all earthly kings as a reminder of God's promise to send his own son to be our king to redeem and to rule. So David speaks of Jesus as God's anointed king. And I've made this point before, but let me connect the dots. Uh, that revolve around the title that David uses, the anointed one. It has special reference to Jesus because the, the Hebrew word that is used here is, is Messiah. 
And, and I hope that when you hear that term, your heart begins to race and your mind begins to click that all of these references to an anointed one is a Messiah. And those Old Testament anointings, again, pointing forward to the Messiah, Jesus. But that's not it. The Greek then translate the word Messiah as Christos or Christ. And we know that word, don't we? In fact, sometimes we, we talk about Jesus Christ as if that's his first and last name. We, that's the way we talk about names. Bruce Parnell, first and last name. Jesus Christ, first and last name. Well, it, it's not really that way. Jesus would have likely have been named uh, Jesus bar Joseph. Jesus, the son of Joseph. Uh, but he's called Jesus the Christ. That's his title. That's his office. As you hear Jesus Christ, think of it as, as the title that is given to him and connect it to the Messiah, the Anointed One. And I hope that you would hear then Psalm 2 as a description of our Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Many scriptures confirm this. And we know it not just because of this progression or dots that are connected together by the names, but by the way, the New Testament uses Psalm 2. As I said, it's one of the, the most quoted psalms in the New Testament, along with Psalm 110. And it consistently uses Psalm 2 to point to Jesus. David is speaking of Jesus. That's what Acts 4 says. That's what Hebrews says in several places. It uses Psalm 2 to say, this is Jesus. Anticipated, come in fullness, died, resurrected, ascended, and reigning as promised in Psalm 2. This is Jesus. So look at verses 7 through 9. And David speaks as a prophet of God of the descendant that had been promised to him. And in a sense, David now is speaking of that overarching, great and glorious story of redemption. Because he speaks of the father sending and exalting his son as the redeemer and ruler of mankind. Jesus came in fulfillment of this promise in Psalm 2, of all of the promises of the Old Testament. But David's not content even there because he reaches further back and speaks of the decree that God has made of the covenant that is made between the persons of the Trinity. He speaks of God's decree, a decree that says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. What he is speaking of is that eternal decree of God before the creation of the world where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit covenanted to bring redemption to mankind. 
And that covenant is further unveiled and further revealed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and proclaimed in, a, in, a, in another way, revealing that this is indeed my son whom I have begotten. These are words that you ought to recognize in the New Testament. Words that Jesus himself spoke of who he was, who he is. Think of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The Apostle John picks up this language. In John chapter chapter 1, he says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And later, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And from this and other references of the begotten, we come to understand that begotten is not talking about a beginning, but of a relationship, an eternal relationship between father and son that is that of the begetter and the begotten, an eternal relationship that is then revealed to us by Psalm 2 and by the rest of Scripture as God coming in the flesh to be our redeemer. It comes through in one of the ancient creeds of the church. Think of the Council of Nicaea, where we confess, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. This is Jesus that Psalm 2 is speaking about. This is the eternal Son of God, begotten, not made, the one who is sent to redeem us and to rule us. So looking back again at verses 7 through 9, you see that, uh, that David speaks as, as the author of the psalm, but I want you to also see that Jesus is speaking here. So, uh, to answer the opposition of the nations, the Father speaks, this is my decree, I have set my king to reign. And this is my decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. So who's speaking here? Well, again, David is the author, but in the context, this is Jesus Speaking of that decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I hope you hear declared throughout scripture this begottenness of Jesus Christ. Think of Jesus's baptism, where the Holy Spirit appears as a dove descending from heaven and lighting on Jesus Christ. And the voice of the Father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is Jesus declared throughout all of scripture 
as the redeemer and ruler of mankind. The word of God goes on then to speak of how the father exalts the son who gives him an inheritance and authority over all things. It is an authority that is confirmed by the promise of God, is witnessed to by the testimony of the Father and the Spirit at his baptism, is declared by his resurrection. Listen to what Paul says in Romans Romans 1. Speaking of Jesus, he is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. All of these confirmations of Jesus Christ as our King, our Messiah. And that authority, Psalm 2 says, is an authority that is over every nation, over man, woman, and child, over institutions, over authorities, over kings, over rulers. It is such a rich description, and that authority is so important that I plan to take it up more fully in the future. But I want you to notice here that Jesus Christ has authority as king to redeem his children. And he has an authority to rule over all things. And that redemption and rule are things that that we need to recognize that it is a rule that is without defense, or you cannot stand in front of. He rules with a rod of iron, that symbol of authority, and he accomplishes every purpose that he has. The psalm therefore closes with the pointed instruction to kiss the Son of God. To kiss the Son, to to turn away that judgment which we rightly deserve. It means that we would bow to Christ as the only Redeemer. It means that we are to worship him as God and king. It means that we are to submit to him and to be ruled by him as the prince of peace. That leads to two applications that I'll make from this passage. The first personal and and the second more broadly about the gospel. The first is very personal. Psalm 2 calls you to consider just what you're doing. Are you one that is rebelling against God? And again, I would remind you of the chilling laughter of God for anyone who thinks they can rebel against God. Now, you might say intellectually, well, nobody would rebel against God. It's foolish. But are you chafing at his law? Are you... Are you thinking of the ways of the Lord as chains that bind you like a dog? And are you wishing that you could throw off those boundaries so that you could be, quote-unquote, free? God in heaven laughs at those who seek to cast off his rule. For as you try to cast off his rule, Calvin says that you wage war against God. It is to rebel against him and his redemption. So here, personally, that that warning 
ends the invitation. Therefore, be wise. Serve the Lord with godly fear. Kiss the son lest he be angry. But blessed are all that trust in him. It's the closing phrase of the psalm. Jesus Christ is the only redeemer. And you may trust in him as your king to find that redemption and salvation. But then secondly, let me make an application to the gospel. That Jesus is God and king. That that the response of almighty God to the opposition of the world is to establish his king forever and ever. And that his purposes will always come to pass. He has authority because he is God, that's Jesus, and he has been given authority because he is our mediator and anointed as such, as prophet, priest, and king. That means that while the world rages against God and against his Christ, that they will never, ever be able to accomplish their purposes to throw down God. Instead, the Lord Jesus Christ will always reign in heaven, will always go about his purposes on earth, and will always accomplish them. Joel Beakey, in his, uh, his family devotional that goes along with this psalm, says, Whatever the opposition, no human power can ever nullify or undo the divine purpose. Then he asks this question. Are you allowing pessimism to affect you? Or are you hanging on to the hope that Christ's kingdom will prevail in every nation? What a great application of Psalm 2 that is. Because the nations do rage against Christ. We live in an age where secularism seems to be winning the day, right? And there are plenty of reasons for us to to be afraid and to think what will the future hold for us, for our country, for our children and grandchildren. There are reasons to be frightened. But God has answered I have set my king to reign. And we can respond to that opposition just like the New Testament church did. Do you notice how how the disciples, when, when the powers that be said, do not preach in the name of Jesus, Do not act in the name of Jesus. Do not speak the name of Jesus. Otherwise, we will come and finish this fight. What did they do? They remembered Psalm 2. And they said to those rulers, Well, you be judge. Should we obey God or man. And as they left with the threats ringing in their ears, they went back and they rejoiced 
that they had been chosen worthy to suffer on behalf of the name of Jesus Christ. And they prayed, may we be convicted of this truth and may we have boldness to continue to speak in the name of Christ and to continue to proclaim that there is salvation in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you allowing pessimism to affect you today? Well, remember that Christ has set set up his kingdom, and God has set him to reign forever and ever. And I pray that you too, that we too, that we as a church, and that the church more broadly would have the boldness to speak in the name of Jesus Christ, knowing that his purposes will always be established. We do that not by any strength in us or courage by us, but by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow before him in prayer. Well, Lord God, we do bow before you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and acknowledge that of your kingdom there will be no end. Lord, we confess that there are many things that frighten us today. We fear the loss of liberty. We fear the loss of, uh, of our earthly goods. We fear, in some places of the world, the loss of life. But, Lord, the opposition of the world is nothing compared to you. And I pray, O oh God, that through Christ and through these words and through this message that we would recognize that there is a God in heaven and that Jesus Christ has been established as king and that he redeems his people and rules over all things. And Lord, let our lives be a witness to that. May we have boldness to speak in the name of Jesus, to proclaim here and around the world that there is no other savior, no other redeemer, no other king in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. So let's sing these words, Psalm 2, Selection A, praising our God and King. Let's stand to sing Psalm 2A.